Coming up today, courage to speak truth in the nation's public schools. When you hear him speak, you just get this feeling of, of strength, power, and the confidence he has that he's right. Then, fighting pornography within the church. It is literally, literally undermining every ministry in the local church. Plus, shoeboxes, gospel teaching, and lots of smiling faces. 30 years of Samaritan's Purse. We got to celebrate this huge milestone because it represented over 200 million children that have received the gospel through a simple shoebox. And how to celebrate Reformation Day. We're camping out and basing our lives on what the Bible says is the gospel. It's the weekend of October 28th and 29th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. First up, we've seen time and time again bold parents standing up in school board meetings and exposing inappropriate materials in school libraries. Well, now one individual is taking up the charge to speak out as well and is stirring up courage in others. His name is John Amanchuku. I believe that the things that I'm saying, it's, it's gaining traction because it's something that people want to hear. It's the truth. It's reality. And more people are saying, even as I'm receiving opposition, they're saying, hey, we need you to come to uh, Texas. We need you to come to New York. We need you to come back to California, come to Pennsylvania. And so we are seeing a groundswell of support and parents and teachers and even school board leaders saying, come help us. We need your strong voice. That's Pastor John Amanchukwu from the Jenna Ellis program on AFR talking about the mission that he's on to confront the sexual revolution that's going on in the nation's public schools. AFN Associate Editor Parrish Alford has written about Pastor Amanchukwu. Parrish, welcome to the program. Jeff, I'm glad to be here, man. How are you? Good. What can you tell us about this man? Well, we know he is an associate pastor with the Upper Room Church of God in Christ in Raleigh, mm-hmm. North Carolina. He's a former college football player at North Carolina State. And this kind of resonates with me, you know, because I covered sports for right. two, three, or 40 years. <laughs> I understand the leadership skills and the personality that most successful college football players have, and I can just envision a, a younger John Amanchukwu uh, calling out his teammates in a yeah. huddle with all eyes on him, you know, demanding better performance, which, which, by the way, is how he's speaking at these school board meetings. Just when you hear him speak, you just get this feeling of, of strength, power, and the confidence he has that he's right. Yeah. We couldn't play the video clips of him reading these books that were found in the public school libraries because of the content. I mean, that's the purpose of him being at the school board meetings, reading to them. But when the objections came from the school board members, it's not hard to hear some panic in their voices as he's reading this. What kind of effect has he had going around the country? I think panic Uh, is probably a good word. You know, public meetings uh, a lot of the times in places are are run by people who are uh, very comfortable with uh, just the agenda that Mm -hmm. they've they've typed out and and we're going to go to this item and this item and this item and and they really are uncomfortable with any kind of disruption or anything that that, uh, deviates from that agenda. And, you know, there may be a you know, a public comment uh, section, uh, a time of a few minutes there. And, and look, uh, 
let's face it, most people, even if they're angry, are gonna are gonna stand up and and they may be angry in their comments, but but few people are going to challenge a government body, a sitting body of of leaders. And I know everybody can see my air quotes right now. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. But few people are going to challenge them in, in the way that that he has done, and, and to take the books that he has and and read these very graphic mm-hmm. passages that uh, that they want children, yeah. they want to be made available to children. Um, yeah, it's it makes people uncomfortable. It's plain that he's showing, you know, the hypocritical nature of some of these officials who want, as you said, to allow this into the schools, but they don't want to own up to it publicly. Since these are elected positions on these school boards, have you seen these positions uh, challenged and being replaced? Well, you know, I have not personally, as a direct result of one of Mr. Amanchukwu's visits, but you know, we know from covering the growth of Moms for Liberty and, and other groups that that challenging sitting school board members in the next election is very much a strategy right now. It's been a successful strategy. We've seen mm-hmm. some turnover in other school board positions like that. So we know that that's not unusual. I, I suspect that it's happening. Once again, the article on AFN.net from Parish Alford is covering Pastor John Amanchukwu, and we encourage you to check that out. Parish, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Next week is Pornography Awareness Week, and few issues touch the church in a way that can weaken the gospel ministry and destroy lives like pornography. Joining us is the director of recovery education at Covenant Eyes. His name is Sam Black. He's an expert in the field of pornography recovery, and he's also the author of the book, The Healing Church. Sam, welcome to the program today. Honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. You know, I wrote The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It, because uh, the church is God's answer. It's plan A to bring restoration and freedom and healing to mm-hmm. people's lives. Obviously, pornography is uh, something that's impacted our society and really shaped modern American culture, but I want to zero in on the church specifically. What is mm-hmm. pornography's impact on ministry? Well, I think we have one of the first things we need to understand that pornography is this secret sin that is undermining every ministry in the local church. You think, Sam, wait, wait, wait a minute. How can it be undermining every ministry in the church? Uh, how it's doing that is the average age for first exposure to pornography is somewhere between the ages of 8 and 12. So we're teaching Bible studies to our kids, but missing how pornography is is also noodling its way into the heart, mind, body, and spirit of children, hmm. which then uh, teens are among the most prolific users of pornography. And then, of course, that as, as they use pornography, it impacts how they think, uh, the, literally the neural pathways in their brain. So as they mature as adults, two-thirds of men in the church, the women in the church, they have an ongoing struggle with pornography. It is literally, literally undermining every ministry in the local church. Where does the church go wrong in addressing the issue of pornography, and, and what are the consequences of that wrong approach? Well, so often what we have done is, one, we don't talk about pornography specifically. We talk about purity, and they already know they need to be pure. But over time, they're, they, from childhood, they have been compromised. And um, so 
they want to be free from pornography often, but they just don't know how, or they've somehow become so accepting of it, or it has become such an escape for them. Three common aspects for people who struggle with pornography as adults. One, it's the early exposure to pornography as a child. Number two, it's the ongoing use and repetitious use of pornography, especially through adolescence. And number three, it's often some trauma or pain that has happened often early in life, but could happen in elsewhere. And so pornography flips from being curious and exciting and fun and uh, enjoyable, etc., to escapism. They learn to anesthetize their emotions regulate their moods, if I've had a hard day, if I feel anger, if I feel frustration with my spouse, if I feel these other things, I can't sit with that emotion. I can't even identify those feelings. I need to run and escape with pornography. And so pornography not just simply becomes this temptation, this lust, but lust overtakes uh, many aspects of a mind, body, and spirit. And so we need a mind, body, spirit attack to go on the offensive to create meaningful life change. You have written the book, The Healing Church. Tell me what your intention behind that book is and how might this be a help to a church pastor or staff member? Well, I wrote the book to ministry leaders and to, because I felt they needed a primer to better understand how people get stuck, why they often stay stuck without help and support, and how... The church is God's plan to create lasting freedom in people's lives. It's not enough to say that uh, the church has a pornography problem that's often hidden. We need a way forward, a way out, a way to Mm -hmm. deal with this issue head on. And uh, the feedback for the book has been fantastic. Yeah, the the name of the book, once again, is The Healing Church, and you can uh, preview the book at the website, thehealingchurch.com. What are some of the common questions that you get from pastors who have been approached with someone in their congregation dealing with pornography, and they simply don't know how to respond? What is a typical wrong response from a Sunday school teacher or a discipler or a pastor in a church? Well, we often don't dig very deep. We don't ask the difficult questions and we try to solve it, <laughs> typically in about 10 to 20 minutes, right? Right, right. And uh, what we need is not only a place to talk about this issue, to have a safe place, but a safe process. Often people, you know, God can do anything. He heals people of their addictions from, from booze and cigarettes and drugs and alcohol and pornography. God can do anything. But often he calls us on a journey of childlike faith where we have to stop leaning on our own understanding and lean on Mm. God and his healing grace with a fellowship of believers, right? And so when we look at Galatians 6, he is saying very quickly, listen, you practice sin, and when you sow sin, you reap the devastation it has on your life. And then Paul says right again, listen, you who are spiritually mature, don't grow weary of doing good, especially to those within the church. Right. So we who are spiritually mature are actually called, we are challenged, we are really set apart to say, hey, let me take you on a healing journey toward lasting freedom. Hmm. Now, here's the cool thing. 
I visited churches across the United States that were doing this work well. I interviewed more than 70 pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, and Christian counselors and others that were really doing this work well. And here's what I found. All those pastors were saying, Sam, you don't understand. I don't do more work now. I do less. And so often we're very fearful of entering this work because we think, hey, it's just going to be overwhelming. It's going to be too much. We're never going to have any real benefit out of it. And what these pastors were telling me is, Sam, because we did this work well, we now have more volunteers. Hmm. Uh, We have people saying, Pastor, I'll do that. I can mentor that other person. I'll take that volunteer project on because having had a spiritual awakening, you can't help but give back the freedom you received. Now, that is an exact flip, by the way, of all the studies that were showing how pornography is impacting the local Christian. Our guest, uh, once again, has been Sam Black, uh, author of the book, The Healing Church, Director of Recovery Education at Covenant Eyes. Sam, very helpful information. We certainly appreciate you stopping by and visiting with us today about this. Jeff, anytime. Thank you so much. Covenant Eyes is a means for accountability online and is designed to work on phones and computers. More information about Covenant Eyes is available at CovenantEyes.com. Since 1993, Operation Christmas Child has been a tremendous blessing to millions of children all over the world through their Christmas shoebox campaign. And here to tell us about that is Lizette Miller of Samaritan's Purse. Lizette, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Give us the big picture behind Operation Christmas Child and the main goals that are there. Absolutely. With Operation Christmas Child, we are so excited to just share God's love in a tangible way through a gift-filled shoebox. And with that shoebox, we can put in school supplies, hygiene items, and toys to bring joy to children all around the world. Now, you also have a gospel component to uh, the shoebox campaign called The Greatest Journey. Could you tell us about that? With every shoebox gift, we share the gospel through the greatest gift, Mm -hmm. and that is getting to tell them about God and and God's love for these children. And then they're invited back to a 12-lesson discipleship program called The Greatest Journey. And these children at that point can go through this 12 lessons to learn about God's love, how to share His message with friends and family, and how to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. That's fantastic. Now, how many countries uh, and areas is Operation Christmas Child serving? Yes. Well, over the last 30 years, we have reached over 170 countries and territories all around the world. Last year, you gave your 200 millionth shoebox out. What was that like? It was incredible. We got to celebrate this huge milestone because it represented over 200 million children that have received the gospel through a simple shoebox. So just being able to connect with the community, just to pack this special shoebox and then take it back to Ukraine to be able to celebrate this huge milestone for the ministry. It was incredible. Wow. Um, Tell us what uh, it's like for a child to receive this box and to go through the greatest journey. How have their lives been affected by that? 
So like we said, many times this is the very first gift these children have ever received, just a way for them to know God's love through a gift um, for someone, maybe from a stranger they don't even know, but getting to, to receive that message through a simple shoebox and then to walk through this greatest journey. So we have story after story of children that have received hope through this shoebox. It's reminded them that they are not forgotten, that they are loved by God, they are chosen by God, and it teaches them that they can return that to someone else. We have children that have received shoeboxes that have gone through the greatest journey, then they have come back to teach the greatest journey to many other students along the way. Well, and I would imagine that their families are impacted by this as well, not just the children. Absolutely. They get to share this with family and friends Families' lives are changed, communities are changed, and then churches become even planted because of the shoebox. So how can people get involved if they'd like to know more about Operation Christmas Child? Well, our National Collection Week is coming up. It's the third week of November, November 13th through the 20th, and over 4,500 drop-off locations will be open that week where they can drop off shoeboxes that they pack. And so you can go to our website, Samaritan's Purse dot org slash OCC and find a drop-off location near you because there's some all across the country and they can drop off these shoe boxes um, and pack it with their friends or family. It's a project that everyone can get involved with. I know that this is a great uh, project for churches to get involved with as a body. So if someone would like their church to get involved, how could they do that? You can do it as a ministry. This is something where you can be a missionary without ever having to leave your community. And so the whole church can come together. We have so many free resources on our website where you can get the word out to your congregation and then just start it. You're called a project leader. You can start the project with a small group and just tell everyone what the mission is, grab some shoeboxes, let them know. We have gift suggestions on our website where you can have some ideas of what to put inside the shoebox. And then you can do this together and celebrate it as a church. Well, this is a tremendous ministry, and uh, we just want to congratulate you all on 30 years of Operation Christmas Child, and we appreciate you, Lizette, coming on and telling us about it today. Thanks so much. We're just so excited and blessed to see what God has done through Operation Christmas Child, and we can't wait to see what He's going to continue to do through the ministry. Once again, if you'd like more information, visit the website samaritanspurse.org slash OCC. Up next, Reformation Day. For many Americans, October 31st is a day when kids dress up in costumes and go door-to-door asking for candy. But there's much more to this day, especially for Christians, than you might have thought. It was on that day in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or objections to the Roman Catholic Church, launching the Protestant Reformation. For all intents and purposes, it was a return to the authority of the Bible and a rediscovery of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone. We paid a visit to Bill Bradford, pastor of the Lawndale Presbyterian Church in Tupelo, Mississippi, to hear about their Reformation Day celebration held annually the week of October 31st. And then over on this side, we'll have a cakewalk, which we call the Here I Stand Cakewalk. <laughs> so everything has kind of a, a, a link to the Reformation, all the little okay. funny games we do. So we have a host of little games, and so everybody's waiting before they eat because we do a little play on the front end. Okay. I don't know when, where the church got the idea. They began a Reformation party back in the late 80s, I believe. It was seen in part 
as a substitution for a Halloween mm -hmm. uh, celebration. So it would move with October the 31st. It would be on that date. So people could come to the church and dress up in costumes, enjoy candy and fellowship instead of going out and trick-or-treating on that uh, day. And the idea was instead of, you know, celebrating spirits or, you know, scary things, that instead we'd recover some sort of appreciation for what happened on October the 31st, 1517. So something more edifying and keeping that in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to ask you, why do you believe it's important to highlight that event that occurred more than 500 years ago? Uh, remembering what happened in the Reformation has continuing relevance to us. I mean, even the term evangelical uh, has its origin back in the Reformation. It comes from the Greek term euangelion, evangelical does, and the Reformers began talking that way. Uh, they viewed what they were doing as a kind of a, a rediscovery or a re-clarifying of what the Bible defined as the gospel. Okay. And they want to make that clear to the people. So we stand on those shoulders as Protestants to uh, remember what evangelical means. Today, evangelical is used more as a, like a subcategory or a, hmm. a political affiliation or a reaction against some sort of social stances. Right. And I mean, it can be used that way, but the origin of the term is we're, we're, we're camping out and basing our lives on what the Bible says is the gospel. And so that rediscovery or reclarifying happened during the Reformation. And then a host of other things uh, occurred and have their origin back there. I mean, the whole Protestant church, whatever denomination in the Protestant camp, they have their origin back in the Reformation. Now, of course, the Reformers viewed themselves as re re-clarifying what the church fathers were teaching and it got obscured during the centuries, particularly the centuries just prior to the 16th century. Um, things like, you know, the conscience or a recovery of vocation or, um, you know, the authority of scripture, that was the main thing, uh, all have their, like, not origin, but uh, sort of took a, 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 a huge step forward in, in those aspects that have been kind of lost yeah. for, for centuries prior. How can churches um, incorporate something like this into their fall festival? Yeah, so we, we now hold our Reformation Day celebration on the Wednesday around Halloween. We don't so much view it as a substitution. So, I mean, if you had a fall festival, this covers the fall festival too. We we do a, a baking contest, a cakewalk, all those fall festival games, the apple bobbing, the little fishing game, as well as games for you know, older kids dealing with like shooting a basketball or things like that. And then we all eat together. And um, so it, it combines those things, the fall theme and it's the Reformation Day. We dress up in costumes and we oftentimes dress up, we, well, we try to say, don't dress up in super scary costumes, but right. now you dress up as well. I do. I dress up sometimes as Calvin. So I have my little French hat on with a little goatee and, 
And so Calvin's um, crest was this heart in open hands, and the heart is a flame. And he, he viewed him, what he wanted about his life was to surrender his heart to God as a burning flame to the glory yep. of God. So I'll, I'll do Calvin sometimes, I'll do Luther sometimes. And uh, actually, we also have a Pope costume. Um, we'll, we'll incorporate that. Somebody might be Tetzel. And uh, so, yeah, we, we people, the, mainly the children will dress up in costumes, but all the staff do as well. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah, it's a great time. It's a great time. And so we have our, we open up, everybody waits because we have our big play, and the youth carry out the play. So, you know, 10 years, I guess, ago, I wrote a little play on that, that pivotal instance of the Reformation when, you know, to help fund St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope, authorized Tetzel to go around through the region selling those indulgences and Tetzel got a little extreme in the way he sold indulgences not just to limit temporal punishments for the living but also to actually enable those who have already dead to escape a certain number of years in purgatory and so he would say before the coin the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs and that really rubbed luther wrong the interesting thing about the reformation is that it wasn't just sprung on people out of nowhere there was this general current that life is short you know the bubonic plague was in the 14th century a lot of other hard things were happening and people really wanted assurance of salvation the reason the reformation happened is because not because europe was irreligious but very religious and they were dying for a clearer understanding of God's Word and the Gospel. And so when Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, and he's just provoking debate, and he picks October the 31st because that's All Hallows' Eve, and the next day is All Saints' Day. And All Saints' Day has an interesting origin too. And so he, it was going to be, it's a big festival in the life of the church, so he expected a lot of people to see it. He wasn't trying to start a reformation. He was provoking debate over mainly this indulgence issue and such that the first thesis of the 95 Theses is all of life is to be repentance. Hmm. And it was a reaction against uh, a mistranslation in the Vulgate of Matthew 4, 17 or 19 that said do penance. And so that contributed to the indulgence and merit issue that you got to do certain works in order to get forgiven. He says, no, the word is metanoieo. It's a change of mind. It's turning back to God. And your whole life, you're believing and repenting. And it's not some certain work that you get a reduction in the years of your temporal punishments for your sins. But, you know, what happened is people read it, and it was in Latin because it was a scholarly debate that he was wanting to instigate. But people were so hungry for a clarity of the gospel that it got translated into other languages and just spread throughout wow. uh, Europe. Oh, God, you really used that, didn't you? I mean, in a remarkable way. I mean, the Reformation is a revival. Yeah. Like, it's a revival of biblical Christianity. And so we've had other revivals. You know, the USA has been very impacted by the First and Second Great Awakening. And those are other big revivals that have their, you know, origin in the re-clarification of the gospel that took place in the Reformation. Well, thanks for showing us around and for explaining it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very happy to do so.
Coming up next week, we'll hear from Voice of the Martyrs' Todd Nettleton about the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians and ways we can support believers around the world. And we'll learn about restoring parental rights and education from Sherry Few with the group U.S. Parents Involved in Education. And Walker Wildman will give us some important information about upcoming elections. If you like what you've heard today, it's a sample of what you'll get every month when you subscribe to The Stand magazine. We encourage you to get your free six-month subscription. Just visit afa.net slash the stand. And if you have any questions or comments about today's program, just email us at thestand at afa.net. Podcasts of today's program are available at afr.net slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening.